that's what I learned. I was like, I'm not a trader. And, you know, fortunately, I kept the loss, you know, $20,000, $25,000. I mean, it stung, but it stung in some ways because I should have known better. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Today's episode is sponsored by the Women Building Wealth Membership Group, the complete proven step-by-step course to guide women from novice to confident investor. To learn more, go to womenbuildingwealth.net. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest David Stein. David, are you ready to rock? I'm ready. Let's do it. Well, David helps individuals become more confident investors via audio, video, and books. For the past five years, he has hosted the weekly personal finance podcast, Money for the Rest of Us. The show has more than 250 episodes and, oh my God, 10 million downloads, more than. (laughs) That's amazing, David. (laughs) David's upcoming book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, will be published by McGraw-Hill in October 2019. In fact, you can... Find out more about it at www.moneyfortherestofusbook.com. I've already been there and I'm reserving my copy. Previously, David was chief investment strategist and chief portfolio strategist at Fund Evaluation Group, a $70 billion institutional investment advisory firm where he co-headed the 21-person research group. David's former institutional clients include the Texas A&M University System, the University of Puget Sound, and the Sierra Club Foundation. David, take a minute and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Well, you, you summarized what I, what I do professionally. I mean, personally, we live, uh, we spend the summers in Idaho. We have a, a cabin up in Teton Valley where we live, do a lot of hiking, fly fishing, spend uh, the rest of the year in Phoenix, still doing a lot of hiking, and um, just enjoy teaching about investing, learning, as, uh, as, and I tend to invest my own assets and guide others. I'm, I'm not an investment advisor, but I, so I, it's all education I provide and, and I enjoy doing it and plan on doing it for many years to come. I think you've got a very enviable lifestyle. My listeners would be very envious to be able to build what you've built. And you and I talked about it a little bit. I'm just curious if you'd have one little piece of advice or tidbit for my listeners who are thinking about, hmm, could I break free from the daily grind of the investment world and create some t- type of content that people would be interested in listening to. I'm just curious, like, if someone is this, asking that question, what would you say to them? I would say that, yes, you can, and it takes time. I mean, I've been podcasting for five years. It, you know, after I quit the investing business, it took me two years to figure out what I wanted to do. It, when you, I had been with my firm 17 years. I told my clients I was retiring and it just, I didn't know what to do, right? In terms of, I didn't have this plan. And so it probably took two years to, to actually get to where, okay, I'm comfortable producing content and, and somebody actually hiring me. But it, especially now, there's a lot more podcasts, there's a lot more blogs. So you kind of have to have a unique voice, but then you have to stick with it. Because it, it isn't something that's going to grow through Facebook ads. It grows through word of mouth. And, and once it grows, you've built this attention asset, then, it, then you have something. But it, it can take 
several years. So you need to have a nice runway. This is not something you're going to quit your job and launch the YouTube channel and or the or the podcast and and expect to be making money within really the first year or two. It it just takes time. Audience, those are some real gold nuggets. And I think you know the concept that it takes time to build an attention asset. You know, it only comes through you know building it over time, building good quality content, and then building trust. And that takes time. So I think that's fantastic advice for the audience. Well, appreciate that. Now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to us and then tell us your story. For sure. This, this worst investment occurred during that transition period after I had quit the investment business. and was just trying to figure out, you know, I'd launched a few websites, shut them down. And then I got to the point where I thought, okay, I am retired, but I still like to invest. So I'm going to be a trader. And when I was at my prior firm, co-headed the research money managers as part of what we did, which included hedge funds, private equity. And so I, as our strategist, we typically go to New York once a year and, and just meet with hedge fund managers because I just like to see how they think and to learn from them and ask them about their mistakes and just kind of see how they're reviewing the world. And now we take that input in terms of what we're doing with our investment business. About a year or so before I quit, I went to a commodities trading hedge fund and they were housed in a mansion in Connecticut. And I, and I met with the, the founder and then I went out onto the trading floor and it was really interesting. The trading floor was separated. You had quant traders on one side and then you had the discretionary traders on the other side. And, and you could tell, you just look at the floor and say where, where the quants sat and where the discretionary traders, because the discretionary traders, in some ways, they, it's a little messier desk. It just seemed less organized. It looked like fun. It looked like a really cool place to work. But once you see them at your desk and you see they're, they're trading and they're working for hedge funds, I kind of got the idea, that, well, it can't be that hard, right? I mean, they're, they're doing it. I had 15 years of investment experience. And so I decided you know, a year after I quit my job, I was going to be a trader. I was going to open up, you know, start trading commodity futures, trading currencies, trading options, just to see. Now, I knew enough to know that I'm not going to put all my money in this. I have, I've known people that have suffered huge losses trading commodities. But I thought with my experience, I knew enough. And, you know, I had economic models that I used and, and things like that. And so I started, I started trading and, and quickly found that it's not that easy because when, let's say commodities, if you want to, people do this all the time. They think oil prices have, have hit the bottom, that, that oil is going to go up. Well, when you're, when you're, you can't buy a, a barrel of oil, you have to buy an oil futures. And what a futures contract is, it's, it's, it's an agreement to either buy or sell a barrel oil 30 days, 60 days, 90, 90 days from now. Well, there's a price out there for that future price, and it differs from today's price, which is known as the spot price. So in order to make money in oil, it's not enough that I think oil is going to go up. It has to go up more than what everyone else thinks it's going to go up in the future. And so there's that little wrinkle there. Well, so I just, I mean, I was, I wasn't trading necessarily on gut feel, but I was trading you know, with some insight, but not really, you know, some of the trades went well and some didn't, but I, what I have found though, with the 
in commodities and, and foreign exchange, gold, silver, precious metals, is the volatility. Right? First off, it trades 24 hours a day or, or most of the hours a day. Maybe there's a small window where it's closed. So it's always trading, but it's extremely volatile. And there's no rhyme or reason to the volatility. And so I realized that, okay, there's, there's stuff going on here. I just, I mean, it's not, it's just not acting. It's not like the investing I was used to by any means. And so I had done fine. You know, I probably, I lost a little bit of money. But I thought, I'm just going to stop. Well, what I didn't do is I didn't realize that I had still one trade open. I had a, a buy, I guess it was a stop buy order. So when silver fell and hit a certain price, it would buy an open contract on silver that I would go long on silver. So, and I just didn't think about it. And, you know, silver fell and it bought me silver and then it kept falling before I realized what had happened. I lost, you know, 20, $25,000 in the silver contract. I didn't realize I owned. Now, in the scheme of things, that's not a huge loss, but it stung because of how I lost it. Annie Duke in her book, Thinking of Bets, distinguishes, you know, a good decision, an investment decision, isn't become, because it has a good outcome. A good decision is the result of a good process. And I did not have a good process for buying commodity futures and trading because I didn't understand what the market was like, right? I thought that I knew enough to invest and knew enough about how commodities work and about economic trends, but I really didn't. And later I had a professional trader that told me nobody can successfully invest unless you have order flow information. In other words, you know, you know who's buying, who's selling, how much they're buying. And even today, the other thing you have to ask when you invest is who's on the other side of the trade, right? Who am I trading with? And you know, when, when Benjamin Graham was, you know, wrote his classic investing book, he was trading with individuals, right? Most individual stocks were held by individuals. And so he could get some type of informational insight. Well, in my commodities trading career, I was trading against institutions and mostly quantitative bots, algorithms that, you know, could act very, very quickly. There's a, a quote by, I forget who said it, but it was in the Wall Street Journal a year or so ago. And he mentioned that, that if, if a hedge fund that trades in commodities, if they think that their competitive edge is that they have this network of people, they know what's going on in terms of order flow, he says, that's like saying you can deliver a package faster than Amazon. Like maybe you could at one point, but now you're competing against robots, which excel extremely well in an environment that, that there is no rhyme or reason to why things are moving. That's what I learned. I said, I'm not a trader. And, you know, fortunately I kept the loss, you know, $20,000, $25,000. I mean, it stung, but it stung in some ways because I should have known better. Yep. I find this story fascinating for a different angle. And that angle is that here in Asia, where I've been most of my life these days now, there's a scam out here, not only a scam, but also, you know, legitimate, where they're trying to encourage people to trade in Forex and commodities. And it's remarkable the number of people that are thinking that they're going to be able to trade in 
commodities or in Forex. And here, ladies and gentlemen, we're listening to a man with decades of experience who's saying it was, you know, tougher than he thought, or maybe more factors and more complexity than you thought. So how could an average person out there, you know, who just saw an ad on Facebook and said, I'm going to start trading in Forex, how could they possibly do it? So I'm just going to, I'm going to add that backdrop in it. Now, I'd like to ask you the questions of what did you learn from this experience? If you were to kind of map out, what did you learn? Well, before I do that, let me follow up with a a story that will reflect what I learned. We bought, about a year ago, we bought some furniture. We were shopping for for some furniture. And the furniture salesman, he he was probably 65, he was way more interested about the trading. He had joined a trading academy and... He just saw it because he once saw I was investing. He was so way, way more excited about that. And so I got to talk to him, talking to him about it. And I said, well, do you have a, a defined contribution plan with, with your work? Because he, he wanted to retire in five years. And he said, no, I, the stock market's too risky. I've never participated. So in the U.S., he could have got a match. He could have got a 100% return on the company match if he'd put money in, but he thought it was too risky. Yet he paid $25,000 to this trading academy to learn how to trade foreign exchange commodities. And I asked him, where is this trading academy? And he told me, and I, I signed up to go to a four-hour seminar because I wanted to see how they could convince a 65-year-old man with no experience at all to pay $25,000 to participate. Now, and he, this guy said, well, you got to invest in myself, right? He got this money, for, there was some inheritance, it got from his mom and it's like, I'm gonna, this is how I'm going to retire. And it was fascinating to sit there to see, because I see you know, around the room, there's 20 people. None of them had really any investment experience. And the approach was, we recognize you're probably behind on retirement and your savings. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is to be more aggressive in your investing, to use leverage. And the way that you make money is you have to cut your losses short. Right? I mean, it sounds good, but this trading academy had a patent. And I actually did a podcast episode on this. And I looked up their patent, and their patent is clear as day that the way that we teach to trade is you're taking advantage of naive traders. You're not going to, you have to trade like an institution. You basically have to take advantage of. People sitting in that room that don't really, or me, right? I was a naive trader. Mm. And that they're buying when others are selling. And it, you know, it has to do with flow information in terms of the, how many buy and sell orders there are. But that was the patent, right? This, it has, you t- we're taking advantage of those that are naive and don't, they're trading on their gut. And, and so in some ways it's kind of perverse because they need a stream of people going in this trading academy and others that don't really know what they're doing because that's how they make money in terms of not only the fees, but that's how the trading works. Now, the other thing I learned is that what you never hear about these trading academies, and you can go through the list of the buyers and instructors, doesn't say how much money they actually had invested. It's like, oh yeah, I've made, I mean, my instructor said, yeah, I've made money every year except for one. It's all right. Well, how much have you had invested? Because, you know, when it's six, seven figures, it's very different than if you're making money every year with $5,000 mm. because the emotion comes in. So 
what I learned is right. No one should be trading commodity futures and foreign exchange and those things because those are speculations. And what a speculation is, is where there's disagreement on whether the return will be positive or negative. As individuals, we should be focused on investing. Investing has a positive expected return, usually because there's some income component or earnings component. And so, I mean, that, that's, that's the key is to focus on investing. It's fine to have some, diverse, some speculations for hedging, but individuals go in and, and if they're, if they're going to bet the retirement on trading, that's pure speculation. You have to be precisely right to make money. Mm. And I think uh, that kind of goes back to, I think of like John Bogle's teachings of why not own every you know, company in the market through an ETF or through a fund where you let those businesses work for you and you expect a positive return over a long period of time. And I think that's part of what you're saying about, you know, for some people, obviously, investing for them is digging into, you know, five or 10 companies, but for others, it can just be, how do I get exposure to the overall, you know, stock market so that I am getting a long-term positive return? Is that, is that what you're talking about? Well, exactly. I mean, that's what most investors should do, right? You'll make money if capital, capitalism continues, yep. right? If somebody's going to buy individual stocks and do the research, Again, you have to consider who's on the other side of the trade. It's mostly other institutions and the stock market, right? It's a transaction market. So everybody comes together and figure out, all right, here's what the stock is worth. Well, if that's what the market has said, and if you're buying an individual stock, what you're saying is the market's wrong. Uh, because, you know, a stock is, the you know, intrinsic value of a stock is the present value today of its future earnings, its dividends. And so you need to have, you need to basically have the gumption to say, I'm buying this stock because the price is wrong. Everyone else that has bought this stock or sold it is wrong. And here's why they're wrong. And most people, they buy a stock because they think it's going to go up because it's a good company. Well, you don't, you don't buy a stock because it's a good company or because its earnings are growing fast because the, the price of the stock already has factored in fast earnings growth if it's a growth company. The issue is it has to grow faster within, within what everybody already thinks it's going to grow faster. And then it's sort of, okay, why? Like, what do you know that everyone else doesn't know? Because everybody already knows it's a good company and it's changing the world. Let's say Amazon or something. But is the price what's priced in today? And that's the challenge. <laughs> well, right. Exactly. And um, if I, let me summarize some of my takeaways from what you've said. Um, uh, the first thing I think is so critical, and, and this is, comes from your years of experience, is the idea is that it's not, it's not enough to find a company or an idea that you like. What is required is to find an, a company or an idea that you like that the market has not seen something about that. Exactly. And I think that a lot of, um, People forget that, that like the question that we always want to ask is the question that you've basically said, which is the idea of what do you know that the market doesn't know? And ladies and gentlemen, most of the time, the answer is going to be nothing. And once we realize that, then it kind of helps us to think, okay, if I want to continue to invest in this individual stock, I probably should think about it as a portfolio of 
a series of stocks, or maybe I just should invest in some sort of ETF or instrument. But of course, there are times that people say, I, I really think I know something here. But nine times out of 10, maybe 99 times out of 100, you'll find that in fact, you actually don't have an edge over them. The other thing I would take away from this is the idea of when you're investing in commodities, when you're investing in foreign exchange, particularly foreign exchange, you are betting against the balance sheet of the banks. You are betting against the political whims of the politicians and the central bank's balance sheets. You know, I think these factors are things that are just so overpowering and can shift a market in a minute that I always find it just so much more scary than when you are, you know, obviously when you're investing in an individual stock, you're investing against, in some way, you're investing, you know, against a big bank and you're investing against a government's policy on interest rates or whatever. But that's, that bet is not them necessarily taking the other side of that. It's those external factors. But when you're investing in some sort of Forex and something, you are definitely, I mean, if the Fed decides to do something, there's just nothing you can do but respond to it. And that response may be that it crushes your portfolio. So is there anything you'd add to my takeaways from that? No, I agree. I absolutely, which is why, you know, I don't, I mean, it's fun to research individual investments, but you have to recognize it should be a very, very small part of most people's portfolios. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yep. because, I mean, there's just professionals that spend all day doing that or, or they're programming algorithms to do it. And I don't, I don't buy individual stocks anymore because I don't want to, I don't, I don't have an informational edge and I don't want to spend time. Now, if you, you do want to trade and, you know, especially if you're in the U S and I think these vehicles exist elsewhere, uh, there's closed end funds. You know, a closed end fund is a type of mutual fund, but it trades on an exchange like an ETF, but it, it's different because there isn't a mechanism to close for most of them, at least the way they're structured in the US, to close the discount. So they'll sell for a discount to what the underlying assets are worth or the net asset value. Mm. So you can see if it's trading at a 15% discount. And, and what I like about the closed end fund market is because there you're trading with other individuals because it's such a small market that really shouldn't exist that institutions can't get involved in it. And so when the market sells off, you can see closed-end funds get pummeled. Now, I mean, there's quirks to it. The fees are expensive. They use leverage. But if you're going to trade, why, instead of trying to win on a binary choice of getting the price of euro versus the dollar right, why not buy a closed-end fund that's selling at a wider-than-average discount, so it's 25% discount and it's typically a 10% discount, and you're collecting a six to seven percent dividend yield while hopefully that discount close. I mean, that that makes more sense because you're not competing against institutions, you're competing against other investors that happen to be panicking and trying to get out. And for the listeners out there that aren't familiar with closed end funds, one way of thinking about it is imagine that a fund raised a hundred million dollars and they invested ten million dollars in ten different companies. And those 10, that they invested at $10 million. And let's just imagine that the share prices stay the same. So it's humming along. They've invested $10 million. And the value of those 10 companies is $100 million. The value of each of those 10 companies is $10 million. And then all of a sudden, 
you find out that you could actually buy into that closed-end fund at a price of $90 million. So all of a sudden, it's trading at a 10% discount, meaning one of the investors in the closed-ended fund decides, I got to get out. I want to get out now, and I'm willing to take a lower price to get out. Is that, would that explain it right? Exactly. I mean, that's how it works, yep. which, you know, it, it differs. You know, in some ways, exchange-traded funds are like that, except there's a mechanism to make sure, because you have all these institutional traders, traders called authorized participants, that make sure the price stays in line to the value of the underlying asset. So there's a mechanism to keep it closed. Open net mutual funds, they keep it closed because they only redeem and issue new shares at the value of the underlying assets. But closed end funds, which were the original mutual funds, they, they trade on exchange and those discounts can, can get very large or you can get to a premium. I mean, you mm. talk about a market that's inefficient. You can see here in the US, funds that sell at a 40% premium. So people are paying $1.40 to get a dollar worth of assets. Why? I have no idea. And um, just, just for those people that don't know anything about that, um, is, there a, is this a, a small pool of funds? Is it, is it a shrinking pool of funds? Is it a growing pool? What, what is going on in that market, that portion of the market? Uh, in the US, it's about a $300 billion market. And there's, there's several hundred of these funds. It doesn't grow that, um, that large, but there's still, they tend to be more income strategies, so a lot of bond strategies. It shouldn't exist because the fees are high and, the, and the, the way that it's done to raise the new fund, you have to do an IPO. I mean, so there's initial public offering. So a broker has to sell these funds to all these, their clients essentially. But as soon as that fund launches, it immediately falls to the discount. In most of the case, so it, it, I mean, it falls you know, from $100 per share down to 90. And the, and the, the people that bought into the IPO, they take that loss. It, it doesn't, I mean, it's not, yeah. So it, but it's, it's, like driving a car, it's like driving a car off of the, uh, the lot and oh, it drops exactly. immediately, except a car uh-huh. is a depreciating asset. Um, and, and for the uh, closed-ended fund managers, the benefit they get is that they're not asked to redeem. The, the money, when someone sells their shares in a closed-ended fund, what's happening is that they're just selling their share to another person. No money's going in or out of the fund, unlike an open-ended fund. So the benefit of a closed-ended fund manager is they could probably take a longer-term view and implement strategies that's not going to put a lot of pressure. On, they're not going to face a lot of pressure like, oh, I've got to come up with cash because people want to dump this fund. Oh, exactly. And that, I mean, that's the advantage. So, I mean, as a manager, there would be fun to manage because, mm. and you, you can use leverage. So, I mean, a lot of them have some type of leverage. And so it would be, yeah, it would be an interesting plus. I mean, from a manager's perspective, the, the fees tend to be very high, yep. the management fee. And so that's why, that's the other reason you, you always sell at a discount. And the way that I look at it is I look at, okay, what's the distribution yield on the fund? So what's the annualized dividend that's being paid divided by the price. So that's essentially the yield. And then I'll back out the interest cost, interest expense and the management expense. So I know, okay, here's kind of my net yield Mm. on this particular fund, kind of my baseline return. And then hopefully maybe the the overall assets will increase, but mostly that that discount will narrow. It's interesting because a friend of mine from Singapore just talked to me about the idea of launching some closed-ended funds in Asia, and we were just talking about the, some of the benefits from those. So it's uh, 
very interesting that you talk about it. Have you done an episode on that? Yeah, I, I know I, I talk about it at length in my book. I'm trying mm. to think. I'm, I would have done an episode probably in the early days. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know exactly well, we, which we definitely, one it would well, be at this yeah, time. Yeah, we, we definitely. I probably should need to do another one. I mean, I've yeah. mentioned it on, on numerous episodes, but I'm not dedicated an entire episode to it. If, if you do do that, I mean, also I'll, for, for the listeners out there, I'll include any links in the show notes as well as a link to the book so that you can get on the, the, the launch, you know, opportunity for the book. But uh, yeah, I think we, that's a great topic. Well, let me ask you, let's go back in time. Uh, you told a good story about that being in that mansion and looking at the traders at that moment. What I want you to go back to is go back to that moment and think about the next person, the, one of my listeners who's out there having that same moment. And they're looking at these traders and thinking, hmm, I could do this. So based upon what you've learned from this story and what you've continued to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate at that moment? Well, don't do it. And, but if you do, start off with a very small amount of money. In other words, if you're going to speculate, anytime you speculate, because that, that's what trading is, it's speculation. You speculate on an amount that you're willing to lose if you lose it all. Got it. So I'm going to try this out and I'm going to, I'm going to put $5,000. That's going to be my trading account. And, well, and like this gentleman that I mentioned, he, I mean, he, at least he was smart about it. He had, he had spent $25,000, but he never actually put any of his real money in. He was still trading shadow portfolios, trying it out and figuring out so he could understand it. And now if you're going to do it before you risk real money, make sure you understand how it works. But I, I have known, if you're a, a very successful trader, you're not teaching at trading academies, right? Mm -hmm. You're, I mean, some maybe are, are that, or will, no, not very many, yep. frankly. They're, they're either working for hedge funds or they're already retired on the beach somewhere. Got it. Right, if, if it's somebody that's like teaching other people to trade, they're making their money teaching other people to trade. Yep. They're not making their money trading. And, and I would just add on to that for the listeners is the idea that um, some of these people, particularly out here in Asia, can be very crafty. And so even if you think that you're a smart person and you're going to start step by step and do little by little and you're going to learn it, you're not going to put a lot of your money into it, they can be very crafty at the things that they expose you to that make you think that you're missing some great opportunity. So also be careful about that. My next question for you is, and this is the last one, What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Well, my number one goal is, I was talking to my wife, LaPrell, about this because we don't typically write down our goals, but she says you still have goals even if you don't write them down. And you know, frankly, my, my number one goal is to sell enough books that I get to write another one. So, oh, yeah. Uh, because I, I enjoyed the writing process, taking you know, five years worth of podcast episodes and distilling them down into the best 60,000 words I could come up with. And it was such an enjoyable process. So my goal is to, and I don't have an, basically the way publishing works is, is it's like venture capital. So the publisher, in this case, McGraw Hill has taken a bet on me. They've given me an advance and it's like, we think he can sell enough books to earn back this advance. So I just want to sell enough books that I can earn back my advance. So maybe I can do it again because it was fun to do. Fantastic. All right. Well, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, 
go to myworstinvestmentever.com. And while you're there, if you have a story to tell, just let me know. As we end, David, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I just enjoyed being uh, on your show. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing so much with the audience. I know people are going to gain a lot from it. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. And remember, ladies and gentlemen, most importantly, protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.